Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation chapter number eight. Revelation chapter number eight. Um, we've got a lot that we're going to cover tonight. If you are new tonight or it's your first time in a long time, uh, we have a Bible reading plan that we've been going through all year long. Uh, it's all been in the New Testament, and right now we are in Revelation. And so we've been reading through um, that exciting and terrifying book. And if you are reading at the same pace that I am reading at, since the last time we were together, we have read through Revelation 8 through 13. So I do not expect for us to cover everything. Everything that is in Revelation chapter 8 through chapter 13, at least not right now tonight. So I'm giving you cliff notes of what's happening in the book, uh, hopefully to encourage you to apply as best you can what we learn from Revelation to our lives today. So all the symbolism, all the meanings, all the things that could be happening in, in chapters 8 through 13, we will not deal with all of them. Application for today, we will do our best to see what the Lord would have for us. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time in those chapters looking at what's happening in the book of Revelation. If you've not been with us or you've missed any of our midweek times recently, uh, I don't have time to review all that we've talked about in Revelation, obviously, uh, but we do have these on on our podcast, and you are welcome to go and listen to those anytime that you would want. Just search for First Baptist Church Saltillo, and I promise you this, we are the only one. So you will not mistake which one is ours. Now, uh, just by way of reminder, in our first discussion of Revelation, we answered several questions about the book. You remember these. We answered the who, the when, the where, the uh, what, the why. We answered everything that we could to give us context about the book of Revelation. But what we did was we talked about three things that were kind of the lenses for which we would look at the letter. These are the main purposes for the book. You have seen these for the third time now if you've been consistent with us, but I do want to remind you of them again. Why? Because it is important that even as we look through chapters 8 through 13, we keep this as the framework and the lenses by which we are reading what's happening. What are those? Well, the book was written for enlightenment, that we would learn what we can about God, about Jesus, about us, about what it means for the church. We certainly want to know God better, so we want to be enlightened. Also, it was written for encouragement. We want to be encouraged to continue on, to serve the Lord, to be faithful to his work as believers, regardless of what's happening happening in the world around us, regardless how bad it may get one day or has been, we are encouraged that Jesus is victorious and we should follow him. Thirdly, it was written for engagement. The goal is that we would take revelation, all of scripture, and it would impact us internally in order to impact the world externally, right? What's happening in us is really just happening so that it can go through us. So how is the book enlightening us, encouraging us, and causing us to engage the world around us. Now, these are the three uh, lenses that we'll use to continue discussing the book of Revelation. Now, we've used an outline for the book that uh, John gives us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. You'll see it in your notes. Here's what John wrote. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. That is a basic outline for the book. You say, what are they? Well, the things that you have seen. We saw that in Revelation chapter 1. If anybody had seen some incredible things about the Lord, it was obviously the Apostle John. He walked with Jesus. What had he seen? He had seen the victory of Christ that happened in his day and will one day happen completely once again. There are the things uh, that are. This is what was happening in their current context. Now, some would believe that the entire book of Revelation was for their current context. I am not one of those. So for me, I believe Revelation chapter 2 through 3 deals with this part of the outline of the book. Dealt with literal churches in that time that needed to be enlightened, encouraged, and challenged to engage the culture around them. And then there are those that take place after this. This is what we would deem to be pretty much the entirety of the book of Revelation. Now, once again... You may hold an eschatological view. <laughs> 
eschatological, I was just messing with you, uh, you may hold a view that says that the book of Revelation was happening at the time in which John lived. It was for the first century uh, Christian. And if you do, that's okay. You would view what happens and the events that are taking place as a coded language so that the Romans would not know that John was talking about them and what would happen in their soon-to-be future. However, if you are like me, you take the majority of the book of Revelation to be future events that have not happened yet, prophecy that will eventually take place during the end times. Now you say, Danny, why do you tell us about those different things? Well, it's because it depends on how you view the book of Revelation. I'm not condemning you if you think it was more about the Roman Empire, if you think it was more about the first century church. I'm not condemning you if you take the symbolism there to mean what they were dealing with as Christians in the first century. It is very possible that that's what John was doing. Also, I'm not condemning you if you think that these are future events that we will one day see unfold. You wrestle through the context of Revelation and the history of which John is writing about, and you decide for yourself as you seek the Lord who is the context of the book of Revelation. Since I'm the one with the microphone, you get to hear the context that I think is happening in Revelation. So, things that you have seen early in the book, things that are also early in the book, things that will take place after this, the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, this is the portion that makes up most things. This section is highlighted by three different judgments. There are the seven seals, there are the seven trumpets, and there are the seven bowls. If you remember from last week, we primarily dealt with the seven seals, and this week, though it will not be all we deal with, we will primarily deal with the seven trumpets. So, let's get started rather quickly as we journey from chapters 8 through chapter 13. Let me show you the first thing I want you to see. See, this is just simply what we will call the silence. As the seventh seal is broken in Revelation chapter 8, we experience silence in heaven as the trumpets begin to blow. Here's what we read in Revelation chapter 8 verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Matter of fact, listen to what we read moments before this scene opens back in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 12. Here's what John wrote. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now I want you to see this picture because there is great rejoicing happening in heaven. From Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 5 and then again here in Revelation chapter 7, shouts of praise are being lifted to God. But when we enter into Revelation chapter number 8, there are no more rejoicing. We've moved from shouts to silence. Why? Because God's judgment is about to take place on the earth. All throughout the Bible, when God's judgment is near, do you know what else is near? Silence. Listen to this from Psalm 76, verse 8. From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still. Listen to this from Isaiah 41, verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Listen to this from Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. When we open... Chapter number eight, silence is what we experience. When the seventh seal is opened, it is not met with praise. Instead, it begins a new set of judgments. As a matter of fact, John sees seven angels with seven trumpets. Now, we're going to learn more about those trumpets in a moment. But just as a spoiler alert, 
These aren't trumpets used as instruments for joyful music. These are trumpets like those used for military use. These trumpets are more like alarms. They're more like warnings for the people that something terrible is to come. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, as well as here in Revelation, the trumpet was symbolic of announcing the coming day of the Lord. Also, all I could really think about when I was thinking about these trumpets was the judgment of Jericho as the people of God were marching around with their trumpets before the walls fell. Well, can I tell you something? The walls are again about to fall. And then John sees another angel with those seven angels. This is in Revelation chapter 8 verses 3 through 5. Here's what John writes. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. I said, Danny, what's happening? When the Old Testament and New Testament, the use of incense was always associated with prayer. Some believe these prayers are the prayers of the martyrs from Revelation chapter 6 who were asking God to avenge their sacrifice and to punish those who disobey him. Listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 32. The Lord said, vengeance is mine. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. This is a picture in Revelation chapter 8 of God's vengeance about to become Reality. Now, as you remember, in Revelation chapter 7, God restrained his judgment while the 144,000 were being sealed. He was protecting his people that were going to be his servants. However, when we arrive here in Revelation chapter 8, that restraint is being removed, and the prayers of his martyrs has rose before God, and his wrath is about to be felt. God would throw his wrath down in response to the prayers of his servants. And so it's silent now, but the silence will not last for long. As a matter of fact, let me show you the sounds. You ready? Silent fear taking over all of heaven as the Lord is about to strike down his vengeance until it gets extremely noisy. Let's begin with what we will call the warning trumpets. These are the first four trumpets that we experience in Revelation chapter number eight. Look at verse seven. Here's what we read. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees was burned up and all green grass was burned up. Trumpet number one is what we would call the earth trumpet. It deals with the earth. You can read this literally. As a matter of fact, here's what John Phillips wrote. Though you can read it literally, there may be an alternative message within trumpet number one. The planet is rid of a third of its trees and all of its grass. The consequences of this are bound to be terrible. The United States, for example, has already proceeded with deforestation to such an extent that the country contains only enough vegetation to produce 60% of the oxygen it consumes. By the way, that number may be lower now. Modern warfare now includes the deliberate defoliating of large areas of forest to deprive the enemy of cover. A literal fulfillment of this judgment is certainly credible as we already see the, uh, the, the vegetation of the earth being destroyed. But you can also read this symbolically. John Phillips goes on to write, whether it's literal or not, here is the symbol picture that we get of the first trumpet. The grass could represent the masses of mankind and the trees could represent prominent leaders and rulers. What is symbolized is a major upheaval among the nations that results in the downfall of many people in high places and a mass depopulation of the globe. This could be what the warning of trumpet number one pictures. Look at verse eight. We'll go on to the next trumpet. We don't have time to spend a lot 
of time in the trumpets. But here's the second one. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Trumpet number two, unlike trumpet number one, deals with the sea. The great mountain could be an asteroid that will strike the earth. I don't know if it will be, but it could be. Certainly this would destroy a large portion of the creatures in the sea as well as the ships in the sea. It would also cause a great disruption to the land with some type of tsunami or uh, disrupting global trade with ships being devastated. The sea turning to blood could represent the amount of pollution that would result in this type of event. Some, however, believe that John is seeing a new world power rising to take control of the world. Here's what John Phillips writes about the symbolism to this trumpet. The sea in Scripture is a well-known symbol of godless mankind. A mountain is frequently used to symbolize a great nation. Babylon, for example, is called a destroying mountain. And the Lord's coming worldwide empire is likened to a mountain. This trumpet could be ushering in, dealing with not only the upheaval in trumpet number one of current world powers, but an uprising in trumpet number two of a new world power. Could also be that the grass is burning up and that an asteroid is falling on the earth, right? Like, I mean, it could be as well. So read that as you desire. Now what's interesting is that this could be in connection with the beast that we'll read about in Revelation chapter 13. Here's what it says about him in verse number one of Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. This could possibly be the rule of the Antichrist as he comes up from the sea that great mountain that was thrown into the waters. It could be. Look at verse 10. Let's move on to the next trumpet. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Trumpet number three deals with the waters. The waters. The sea is more salt. The waters is more fresh. In other words, the trumpets are dealing with all of creation. You'll see this as we continue to move forward. Now, a great star fell from heaven could represent some type, once again, of asteroid or meteor, like mentioned in the second trumpet. Regardless, this star will make waters on the earth poisonous and people will die from them. That is literal understanding of what's happening. However, some suggest that the great star really represents a personality. Several names throughout history have been suggested. I won't bore you with all of the different opinions. However, if you think this is symbolism for a personality, you will probably settle on this being Satan or the Antichrist. Some find symbolism later in Revelation that suggests the devil comes from the sea and that he was cast down from heaven like a star from the sky. Matter of fact, John calls him Wormwood. In my translation of the Bible, that word is capitalized as in to suggest a person. He calls him Wormwood to describe the bitterness poison of the devil that he will bring to the earth. The symbol of water represents the people of the earth and how the devil will poison them and make them bitter like himself. You can take a literal understanding of the scripture or you can read into the symbolism of maybe what is to come. Let's move on to verse number 12, Revelation chapter 8 at the fourth trumpet. Here's what it says. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. You realize all these thirds that's happening? By the way, can I just make a suggestion? Is a third all of it? No. You know what that gives me a picture of in my mind? Though it may be rough, God's still in control. You with me? It's just a third. Oh, that sounds horrible. But it's not fully devastated. Why? 
because God's still in control. Trumpet number four, by the way, while I'm side noting there, deals with the sky. We've got the earth, the sea, the waters, and the sky. Now, some suggest that all these natural disasters that are mentioned here in Revelation chapter 8, verse 12, are documented for part of the reason why the Roman Empire fell. So if you take a reading of Revelation that compares this to the first century church and Christians, and that this is really about the Roman Empire, you would document all the horrible events that took place as the Roman Empire was coming to an end. You would liken these descriptions to what John was seeing on the horizon for the destruction of an evil empire. As a matter of fact, this could be what John had in mind. However, others suggest that this refers to future events that will happen at the end times. The darkness that John writes about here might refer to various eclipses that will happen as a sign of Jesus' return. The earth, the sea, the waters, and the sky will all suffer God's wrath. Even others suggest that the use of sun, moon, and stars is reference to ruling authorities, some greater, some lesser, but all powerful. This could be John giving us a picture of the overthrow of world powers that lead to a point in time in which the Antichrist can come to power. Since ruling authorities will be overthrown, this could be a picture of the beast beginning his rule on the earth. Now regardless of how you interpret this trumpet, one thing is clear. If you look for relief from the earth, guess what, friend? You will not find it. If you look for relief from the sea, guess what, friend? You will not find it. If you look for relief from the waters, if you look for relief from the skies, you will not find it. These series of trumpets are meant to point people to the only place they will find relief. You want to guess where it is? Jesus. That's it. It's the only place that we find comfort. It's the only place where we find relief. It's the only place where we find encouragement, even in a day that we live in now, where things are not as God desires. These are final warnings for people to turn to Jesus. These are what we would deem the warning trumpets. Let's move on to the next one, which are the woe trumpets. These, as horrible as the first trumpet sounded, are even worse. All right, we've got to go fast. Trumpet number five deals with the bottomless pit, or what you might know as the abyss. When we open Revelation chapter 9, we're met with another star falling from heaven. Stars in the Bible have been symbolic for many different persons throughout history. This includes Satan, angelic beings, pastors of churches. This is even a description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 22. So most people suggest this star is either Satan or a very high-ranking angelic being. Now, if you say, Danny, angels are, are good, aren't they? No, not the bad ones. So in case you didn't know this, demons are also angels. They're just bad angels. So you can call them demons or you can call them bad angels. But either way, they are part of the angelic realm. So regardless of whether you think it's Satan or a high-ranking angelic being that doesn't matter, this being is given, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Ooh. Sorry, it is kind of creepy. The word for bottomless pit is used a few times throughout the Bible. Most suggest this refers to a prison that held some of the vilest demons in history. As a matter of fact, some even suggest that this would be like what we know as the Titans in Greek mythology. That is the devastation of these particular locked up beings in the bottomless pit. One of the most familiar uses of this word was by the demons that encountered Jesus in Luke chapter 8. You remember what they said? They said to Jesus, begged him, do not command them to depart into the abyss. They did not want him to send them into the bottomless pit. Even those vile demons did not want to be by those other vile demons. You know what I'm saying? They even got some ranks within themselves. They'll be bad, but they ain't that bad. You know what I'm saying? Regardless, Smoke rises that darkens the world, and from this pit are terrifying creatures known as locusts. This is that really interesting moment that happens in Revelation chapter 9. Now the locusts are told not to harm the earth or those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
whether you hold to the view that this group mentioned back in Revelation chapter 7, by the way, whether you hold to the view that these are ethnic Jews or a representation of the church doesn't take away from the impact of these locust-like beings. This is very similar, by the way, to what God did during the plagues in Egypt. The Egyptians were not harmed. Uh, the Egyptians were harmed, but the Israelites were not. They would torment everyone else for five months, but they wouldn't kill anyone. Though they will be terrible, they're still limited in their authority because God ultimately is in control. Remember that whole one-third thing? It's not all of it. Why? Because God's in control. Are they going to torment people for five months and look scary as anything you could ever imagine? Absolutely. Do you want to be here with them? Of course you don't. But will they have ultimate rule and reign? No, they will not. They will be limited, not just in their time, they will be limited in what they are allowed to do. Now, what's most interesting, as I know you want to think about, is the description of the locusts. Now, just in case you haven't read Revelation chapter 9 this week, let's read the description of these beings. It starts in Revelation 9, verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. That's freaky. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people and they and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now, these locusts are most likely not a locust that you might be picturing in your mind. If you have seen this type of locust around your house, you need to call somebody because that is not okay. Some suggest that this is a symbol of the internal decay of the Roman Empire. If you believe this is written to first century Christianity and talking about the Roman Empire and the persecution that they're under at the time, you would understand this to be leaders who will cause the self-destruction of Rome, while Christians, by the way, during this self-destruction are untouched because they have no dealings with the government. These locusts may be able to torment themselves and the people there, but they have no bearing on Christians because they don't care what's happening outside of the government. John could be referring to the many natural disasters that attributed to the fall of the Roman Empire, as well as the leaders who destroyed it from within. The trumpets could be natural disasters. This trumpet could be an internal struggle that tears them from within. However, these could also be demons that are released to torment the world in the future. And they are such terrifying beings that John has no other way to describe them other than the words that he uses in Revelation chapter 9. They're like horses prepared for battle. They're defiant and nothing will stand in their way. They have crowns of gold on their heads because they will move at will like kings to conquer anything in their path. They had faces like human faces representing an intelligence Intelligence to their madness. They had hair like women's hair. Though they were terrifying, they had something attractive about them that enticed the desire of man. They had teeth like lion's teeth. Nothing could be freed from their grasp. They had breastplates of iron. They were immovable and without remorse. The sound of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle, moving like the wind in the swiftness to destroy everything. They had tails and stings like scorpions. Their only goal is to inflict pain upon people, and they had a leader that ruled over them named Abaddon. They were organized, and they are purposeful. Woe is trumpet number five. Whew. Trumpet number six deals with the Euphrates angels. This was an interesting moment in my reading of Revelation chapter 9. I hope it was for you as well. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Revelation chapter 9, verse 14, John writes this, saying to the sixth 
angel who had the trumpet released the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, I won't read a whole lot more about them because we don't have time. We aren't even told who these angels are. All we know is that they are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, there's a couple opinions on this. I'll share them with you. First one's from a guy named Chuck Swindoll. I like that guy. He's pretty smart, a lot smarter than me. Here's what he wrote. The four angels bound at the Euphrates may be the spiritual powers of wickedness that stand behind four nations that will oppose God and his people during the coming tribulation. If you hold to this being a future event, this is exactly what you would be thinking about as you think about these angels. If you don't know this from the New Testament, there are plenty of demons and forces that are well beyond our control that are behind some of the princes and principalities and rulers of our world. If you don't think this could be demons who take control of nations, then you are out of your mind. Now, is it? I don't know, but I believe they can. Here's another opinion, though. This is by Herschel Hobbes. I like this guy, too. He's also pretty smart. He says this. This reference is to the Parthian Calvary from the land of the Euphrates. Rome never did conquer these people. A dreadful belief existed within the empire that an invasion by the Parthians would someday destroy the Roman Empire. So the vision was based upon actual historical conditions. So if you're a premillennialist and you think of this as future events, you might see demonic powers behind world leaders who will one day try to take over the world. All right, scary, I know. Or if you think this was first century Christians and uh, written to the early church during the days of John to encourage them during the days of their persecution, you might see this as a coming force who will take down the empire that has held them captive for so long. Now, let me tell you this, regardless of who you believe on who these angels to be, or if you have your own theory, which is fine as well, they're mounted troops will number 200 million. I wish I'd have wrote down a description of this. It was something crazy like this type of force would be one mile long and 80 miles deep. I don't remember the crazy number that it was, but the, the, the sheer force of what this army will look like should terrify everybody to their bones. It will number just by the way they're mounted troops. Well, number 200 million. Also, they will bring about more incredible destruction. They will kill, according to Revelation chapter 9, verse 18, a third of mankind. So much destruction has happened. So many thirds have been destroyed. Even still, listen to what John writes in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 through 21. Read this with me. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues these angels did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Think about this. Even though these warnings were so severe, even through these woes, people still chose not to repent and turn to God. I want you to see this picture. Jesus is still opening seals, blowing trumpets, doing every possible thing he can to capture the hearts of mankind. He still hasn't destroyed the world. He's still giving time for people to repent. He sent out 144,000 who can't be touched so that they will bring the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And even after all of that, people will still choose to reject Jesus. I don't know a better word to use than woe. As Isaiah said, woe is me. How can I stand in the presence of such a great God? Okay, wow, Danny, you're taking way too long. Number three, we're gonna go faster here. I wanna show you the scroll. It's what we find right before we end with the seventh trumpet. We find the scroll. This is the entirety of Revelation chapter 10. And when we get there, we encounter another angel. Here's what the first verse says in Revelation chapter 10, as John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Danny, what does that mean? I have no idea. But he was awesome, or she 
or whatever, I guess we don't want to get into a gender discussion, but whatever the angel was at that point. Now this angel in Revelation 10 was holding a scroll and had one foot on the land and one foot in the sea. This is a picture of holding a message that is applicable to the entire world. Yet the thundering judgments of the angel's roar are kept from us. Do you remember this in Revelation 10? Though it pronounced judgments, the angel told John not to write about them. Now listen, we don't know what the thunders were, but the seventh trumpet would fulfill the mystery of God that has been proclaimed since the days of the prophets. What was in this scroll that was meant to be a message to the world? Well, we know that it was sweet to John's tongue, but bitter in his belly. Why? Because this is likely the message of victory for those who trust in Jesus, sweet to his mouth, but condemnation to those who refuse to repent and follow him, bitterness to his stomach. Now we understand this because obviously the good news of Jesus is good to you and to me. However, it still should make us feel sick when we think about the peoples and nations and tribes that won't be in heaven because they never chose to follow Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about every nation won't be there, every tongue won't be there. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people from those who will not be there. If that does not burden your heart, then I almost have to ask you if you know Jesus. Nonetheless, John ate the scroll as a symbol of internalizing the message of Jesus so that he could proclaim it to the world. By the way, it's not the first time somebody eats a scroll in order to proclaim the message of God. Ezekiel does it as well back in Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3. The scroll, the message for all the land and all the sea that will continue to be proclaimed. Let's move on. I only have five, so we're getting there. Number four Let's introduce you to the strangers. You say, Danny, what are you talking about? When we get to Revelation chapter 11, we encounter two witnesses. These witnesses will be given miraculous abilities. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 11, verse 6. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now there's tons of speculation about these witnesses. Many think these two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. They get this from lots of different understandings, but they're also present at the transfiguration of Jesus. So it's thought that they might be the ones who return. By the way, if you watch the Left Behind movies, I think that's who they say are there. So that may be why it sticks out in your mind. Some think it's Enoch and Elijah. The reason is because they're the only two men in the Old Testament to never experience death. Also, those who think the book was written to first century Christians as an encouragement to the early church think that the witnesses could be Peter and Paul or James and John or even high priests that were killed by the Romans. Now, some think that these witnesses will be used by God to seal the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel's that we read about back in Revelation chapter 7. They will gather these tribes and witness to them so that they can become followers of Jesus and his servants during the tribulation. Now, this is a good time personally, although I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but it's just some food for thought for you to think about it another time. This is a good time for you to uh, broach the topic of how you believe the church and Israel function together in our day and time. As we think about the wars in Israel, as we think about the things that are happening there currently, you might wonder, what is our stance? What should we do? How do I relate to Israel today? What is my part in what's happening across the globe? Well, there are many views about the relationship between the church and Israel. I'm going to give you three of them, but there are really variations of all kinds. Here they are. The first one's what we will call dispensational theology. You might have heard this as dispensationalism. You might have heard this as you are a dispensationalist. Whatever the case may be, this is dispensational theology. theology. Now this view aff affirms certainly salvation by grace through faith. So don't misunderstand this. If you're a dispensationalist in the room tonight, 
Wonderful. You believe as I do that we are only saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That does not change. However, a dispensationalist separates Israel in the Old Testament from the church in the New Testament. They believe that these are two distinct and separate groups. Israel refers to the physical descendants of Abraham. Church refers to Christians from the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church. They view the church in Israel as having two different roles in history and two different roles in the future, but will both be combined after Jesus creates a new heaven and a new earth. Now, dispensational theology has various forms. However, most would think of Israel, the nation or ethnic people, as chosen by God, whether saved or not at this point. So regardless of whether the nation is doing horrible things right now, or you disagree with them, you will fight to, their, to your death on their behalf because you believe they're that special by God. Regardless of whether they trust in Jesus yet, they are still chosen for a purpose, and you will go to bat for them. If that's you, you hold to this view, you are probably a dispensationalists, and that's okay. Nothing wrong with that view about Israel and the church. Let me give you another view of Israel and the church. This is called covenant theology. This view as well affirms salvation by grace through faith, but this one's a little different from dispensationalism in the sense that this view thinks of the Bible as one large story, all pointing to one covenant made possible through Jesus. In other words, the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's not standalone, or it is not a replacement. The church becomes the fulfillment of Israel and those chosen by God. This would be a, a, a picture of the grafting in that you might read about in Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11. We won't go there, we don't have time, but you would think of Israel, the nation, those who are saved by Jesus now as being from the original line of Abraham, and Gentiles who are saved being grafted in, also becoming children of Abraham or a part of the nation of Israel based on their faith in Jesus. Now, the Old Testament looked forward to a promised Messiah, and the New Testament looks back to a promised Messiah. Both look forward to a second coming of Jesus. This view sees Israel and the church as the same. Both groups are saved by grace through faith, and the church has fulfilled what God began originally in the nation of Israel through his church. Now, there are differing views within this stance as well. However, most would view the church as true Israel, both the them would be followers of Jesus, not separate. Therefore, the nation of Israel or ethnic Jews would only be sided with as it pertains to those who follow Jesus and not a particular ethnic or geographical nation. Now, the promises to Israel find their fulfillment ultimately now in the church. Now, there's a third one, by the way, if you're a covenant theologian, nothing wrong with that. You still believe in grace by faith in Jesus, and you believe that the church fulfills, not takes the place of Israel. I would say if you're going to be one of these three, dispensationalism or covenant theology are your best decisions. Replacement theology is not one that I would recommend. This leads to hatred of the Jewish people. By the way, lots of our early church fathers and early reformers, who, by the way, made the Protestants who we are, many of them were replacement theologians. This view believes that the church has replaced Israel. Now Israel and the promises made to the nation have been abandoned because they rejected Jesus. All the promises made to Israel have been replaced by the church. These are three of the most basic views of how we should relate to Israel, the church and the nation in the Old Testament chosen by God. Now you say, Danny, what do you think? Well, I'm out of time, so I can't uh, really tell you where I fall on that. No, I'm just kidding. I would say, unfortunately, that I'm probably a combination of both dispensational theology and covenant theology. One of the reasons I lean more toward covenant theology is because it gives a greater timeline of the same mission of Jesus saving the world. Dispensationalists typically think of God's grace being acted out in different ways throughout history, which would look different based on whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. I personally would affirm that it's always been by faith in the promises of God. If you were Abraham, you were righteous because of faith. If you're a Christian today, you are righteous because of faith. It is all because of Jesus. However, I 
would hold more to a dispensational theology when it comes to the fact that there will be a chosen group of Israelites who will stand in the millennial reign, who will serve alongside of Jesus. I believe there will be fulfillments of the Old Testament that will find their place in Israel of today, and I believe there are plenty that will find its fulfillment in the church. I would be a hybrid type of thinker. And they say, Danny, does that work? It don't matter if you think it works. That's how I like it. And so that's how I'm going to stay. <laughs> I also may switch to a pre-trib guy because I still don't want to be here when all this is happening with the seals and the trumpets. So anyway, leave me alone, okay? But here's what I will say. Israel has a plan in the future of God. There is no way around that. You cannot read the Bible and not see what he's going to do through Israel. The question for you is this. What does that look like for you? How will you stand beside them? By the way, we should pray for them. But can I tell you something, friends? We should pray for every nation who needs Jesus, right? And so we should certainly stand in the gap and pray for Israel, knowing that God will do something with them in the future. But God loves all mankind wants to save the world, not just one ethnic group from the Middle East. Are you with me? So it's a little bit of both, okay? By the way, I'll put a little plug here, but we got to finish up. Let's move on, by the way, to the fifth one. I'll put a little plug here. I listened to a couple of sermons uh, from Matt, the pastor at First Baptist Tupelo. Their church just walked through uh, one particular way of viewing how the church should relate to Israel. It's a three-part sermon series that they did. I would highly recommend for those of you who are really interested in learning more about that and maybe where you stand as you think about Israel and pray for Israel. We don't have time for that tonight, but if you're interested in it, he did a fantastic job, in my opinion, of putting out one view of how we can relate to Israel as the church. I think it's a good one. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's a good listen. If you would like to listen to First Baptist Tupelo's previous sermon series, I think you will enjoy it. Okay, there's plenty more that we could talk about there, but we've got to move on. Let me show you this last one. These are what I would call the beginning of the signs. They start in chapter 11. They go through chapter 13. Here's the first one. It's designated by blessings. We see this in chapter 11 when Heaven is praising the name of Jesus. Their voices in heaven are blessing the name of Christ. The 24 elders around the throne were blessing the name of Jesus. They were praising him because his reign was about to begin. Once the seventh trumpet blew, the bold judgments would begin and the reign of Jesus would follow. Sign number two is what I will call the battles. We don't have a lot of time to go into these because I've got to let you leave. But as we open up Revelation chapter 12, we discover several symbols. You read these and probably thought, Danny, what in the world is happening? Happening. We encounter a woman who is most likely a symbol of Israel. We see her giving birth to a male son who is most likely a picture of Jesus. We see a great dragon who wants to destroy the child, which is most likely Satan and his desire to keep Jesus from saving the world. This is a picture of the first coming of Jesus. The battle was the devil battling Jesus in his first coming. The second battle we see later. This is between this is when the, the Satan and his uh, followers fought against Jesus in heaven. Some suggest this to be a symbol of the resurrection of Jesus and also the resurrection of the church. This could be a symbol of the rapture. However, the woman represents the 144,000 of Israel during the tribulation who are protected by God but still on earth. This next battle scene after this is in heaven. Some have suggested that this is a scene from the original fall of Satan. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, it says that... Uh, no, we don't have time to read it. I'm sorry. Anyway, if you were to read in Revelation chapter 12, you would discover this Satan-type being being thrown down to earth, and then the Michael and other angels fighting against him, the armies of God against theirs, and they could not win. Jesus still forced them to earth. He won once again. Now, of course, Satan was unsuccessful, and all of heaven's residents are safe from the schemes of the devil. You want to know what their awesome weapon was? It's found in Revelation 12, verse 11. It says, and they have conquered him by the the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now the final battle is seen on earth after Satan and his armies were thrown down in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9. Those in heaven could rejoice because they were protected by Jesus. However those on earth would now suffer the wrath of the devil. Once again the woman seems to find protection represented by Israel but the offspring which are those who are saved during that time Christians seem to still experience persecution. 
Now the battle seems to rage on through the next chapter through what I would like to call sign number three, which are the beasts. You say, Danny, what do you mean? When we open up Revelation chapter 13, we encounter two beasts. Here's Revelation 13, 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. Now the first beast comes from the sea. Some suggest that the symbolism of this beast is the same beast Daniel wrote about in the Old Testament. The description that's used, leopard, bear, and lion, are also used by Daniel. It could be a representation of three great empires. We would call these Babylon, Persia, and Greece. It was also representative of what they were known for and their destruction. Some also suggest that this beast is a representation of the Roman Empire and various emperors in the history of the empire. Regardless, it seems as though this beast will be the Antichrist and have some connection with the same empires that have always waged war against Israel. It goes on to talk about that in verses 4 through 8 of Revelation chapter 13. The beast, the Antichrist, will deceive, persecute, and destroy the world. Where many were saved in early chapters of Revelation, this time will be categorized by the saints being conquered. Now the second beast is found in Revelation 13 verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. The second figure is known as the false prophet, the right hand man of the Antichrist. Now I hope you pick up on this because it happens a lot in Revelation, but there is a ton of symbolism to the devil mimicking God. The dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet work together almost like a fake trinity. Everything the devil tries to do is to replace God. Now listen, if you read in Revelation 13, 12 through 15, you discover how cunning this beast will be. It will be able to lure most people into false worship of the Antichrist. Then, as we know it, as you finished up your reading in Revelation 13, this will be followed by what's known as the mark of the beast. How bad will it get? for those who desire to follow Jesus. They will be able to have nothing and will eventually accept the mark or they will accept martyrdom. <sighs> All right, I know that was a lot. I'm with you. So you say, Danny, what, what do we do with all of this information. Well, to be honest, we only scratched the surface of all that we could look at in these chapters. But I do want to leave you with a couple of thoughts as we end tonight, and here they are. I'll list them out for you. As I read this and process through what's happening in Revelation, there are a couple of things that stick out for me that I hope will also be applicable to you. The first one is that God will always be in control. doesn't matter how bad it gets. We know that God has all of it in the palm of his hands and that he's working everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Secondly, the name of Jesus will continue to be praised. You say, Danny, when fire's thrown down, yeah. You say, Danny, when these trumpets are blowing and, and a third of this and a third of that, yeah, Jesus' name will still continue to be praised. Matter of fact, while this is happening, people will give their lives to Jesus. The numbers in heaven will be added to, even though it will be terrible. Thirdly, people will continue to be saved and die for their faith. That's the type of commitment they will still have. Lastly, listen to me. We should leave these pages of Scripture motivated to share Jesus with others. Danny, this is terrifying. I agree. So think of all the people that you do not want to experience these days. Amen? So what should we do with it? Well, we should be enlightened about the things that we learn about Jesus. We should be encouraged knowing not that he's on our side, but that we're on his, right? And we should be pushed to engage the world around us who needs to know Jesus. Friends, can I tell you something? Why wait for the 144,000? Danny, will that be Israelites? Will that be Christians within the church? Is that the true Israel? Is that ethnic? I don't know. Think about that yourself. But why wait on those 144,000 to see a revival happen? Why not see the revival happen now as we decide and commit that even through all of this, we desire to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope that is your prayer as it is mine.